I have a special gift for you. Oh, what is it? You ready? You got to close your eyes on this one, okay? You got to close your eyes <laughs> oh, and hold out your hand. You bought me a gift. <laughs> First rate romance. I assume you mean the blurbs oh, on the inside yeah, cover. But also, you should definitely read the back. You oh should read the God. back out She's loud. She's holding a fur coat around her naked body. And I don't think that's Fabio, but it's a Fabio alike. That's not Fabio. his nose. No, look at him. Read the back. Read it out loud, Morgan. <clears throat> read okay, it. first of all, Until Forever by Joanna Lynn. Your girl. It's your girl. It's your girl. From the shadows of the past, prim and beautiful Professor Rosaline White clutches her new prized possession, a thousand-year-old Scandinavian sword. Eyebrows, eyebrows. And suddenly, a dream stands before her. A magnificent Viking warrior sworn to satisfy Rosaline's every desire. Yes. Until forever. Accursed for untold centuries, Mighty Thorn <laughs> is now enslaved to a woman. Mm. Yet it is Rosaline who is the true prisoner, mm. held willingly captive by a handsome barbarian who sweeps her back to the ancient past on a journey of sensual discovery. But only by banishing him from her life forever can Rosaline free Thorn from immortality's oh, chains. No. She's gonna kill him! She's got to. She's, She's gonna, gonna free murder from him! His chains. She's He's gonna murder him. It's what you gotta do when you love somebody. You gotta stab a thousand year old sword straight to their part. Is that what happened? I literally have no idea. I only got it because the cover. Forcing her to make a devastating choice that will either imperil their future mm. or preserve a love more powerful than time. Wow. Romantic Time says Joanna Lindsay creates fairy tales that come true. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> First of all, there is an argument here that this woman does create fairy tales. Tales, excuse me, mm-hmm. because fairy tales are pretty fucked up. Super, super duper. <laughs> I don't know why they would come true. Do you this want a thousand a year old yeah, Viking like the, asshole to show a, up? And hey, like, romantic times. Do you know how a book works? <laughs> hey, romantic times. Do you know not, how time works? This is not real. No, it's not. <laughs> this anyway, is not making a fairy tale come true. Oh my god, look at that! I that. love it. I know you do. I'm I saw so it. <laughs> Can I read the first sentence? Please out loud? do. Let's hear. Oh my god. Romantic Times describes Joanna Lindsay as a dream spinner. Extraordinaire. Dream spinner. Spin me a dream. It was driving her crazy to let that box sit there on the small credenza beside (laughs) her desk and not open it. Rosaline White could have sworn she had more willpower than that, but apparently not when it came to her one and only passion. Ooh, what is it? She still tried to ignore it. Oh. And the fact that she was glancing over at it every mm. few minutes. Mm. Magic wand. That sounds right. Like that a Hitachi. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. like a Hitachi. Like a That's definitely what it does. That thing comes with a warning that like the first time you use it, you should have a down comforter between you and the magic wand. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> I know. All right. Challenge accepted. <laughs> All I have is a light cotton sheet. <laughs> I don't know. Dear it's Hitachi only- magic wand. If I fold it in a bunch, would that constant it's a 400 thread count. Is that good enough? It's an Egyptian cotton and I think it will protect me. Is that good enough? How good is it? Dodgy magic wand. That's all I want. And Yours then- forever. <laughs> Caroline. Hello. Lindsay Sands. Lindsay. You marry a Scottish laird. Mm. Tell me about this. I don't know. I got it because of the cover. Is this a large print edition? Fuck Girl. yeah, it is. Fuck yeah, Come it on. is. You know what I love about romance large print editions? The people sitting behind you on the train can also read. Now that you've mentioned it, I'll never read a large print edition <laughs> on the train. Thank you for quickly dampening my joy. It, like envisioning the women in their reading glasses who need a large print edition. And I imagine them all as B. Arthur. I imagine them all removing their glasses and saying, finally, a book for me, a book that I can get into. Literally. Let's do a random dip. That sounds great. Ross relaxed and gestured to the trestle table. Ooh, a trestle table. Sit down and drink your (laughs) (laughs) ale. I've no doubt ye need it about now. I'll just order the bath for Joan and warn the cook to prepare a feast, then then join ye. I could do with an ale or ten after today's revelations myself. Oh, revelations. Shaking his head, he turned away and headed for the kitchen's muttering. Kate had a dog 
daughter. I hope to hell she's nothing like her. <gasps> Kate had a daughter? Campbell Sinclair. No, you can't have two last names. You can have two first names, Anderson Cooper. That's the Cooper. Highlander. Not into it. That's the Highlander. Also, no, that's not his name. The Highlander. He's uh, from the Clan McLeod. It says Highlander Campbell Sinclair. That's bullshit. There can only be one. You know that's not... <laughs> you're not saying there can only be one Highlander in that movie. It's called Highlander. There can only be one. Isabel, you know how that movie... God damn it. <laughs> You know what my favorite part of that whole movie is? <laughs> I don't think you've ever seen it. Oh my God, I've seen it a billion times. We used to watch it in my family because my family is a bunch of nerds. My favorite part of that whole movie, it's Sean Connery's earring. Good call. It's dangly. Mine says floppy hat. I get it. I get it. I see it. God, I love it. My, my favorite part is that the Scottishmen, as they're properly known, the Scotsmen of the clan McLeod. Yep. And the Egyptians sound Scottish. Mm-hmm. I love that, like, <laughs> fucking shock. Connery cannot be bothered. He's like, I'm a Spaniard by way of Egypt. I'll just keep rolling my gorgeous eyes. He doesn't do anything with his accent. Nope. It's all the same. I know. He's like, this is me now. (laughs) This is me forever. Okay. What are we talking about? Great. Do this. Yeah. All right. (sighs) Hi. I'm Isabeau. And I'm Morgan. And this is Womans. A podcast about romance novels. Dead bodies. Secret treasures. Tattoos. Grecian Christian numerology. Yeah, lots of that. This is a podcast about forensic science. The long con. Love triangles. But most of all. What's that first thing? What's that first thing? And ourselves. On this week's episode, we are breaking down Selena Montgomery, a.k.a. the next governor of Georgia, Stacey Abrams. Please fucking vote Georgia. Vote for Stacey Abrams. She's running for G-O-V of G-A. That's right. And she used to write romance novels under the pseudonym Selena Montgomery. I listened to her interview on Call Your Girlfriend, Mm -hmm. and they brought up the fact that she was a romance novelist, and I love the fact that she's always really frank and like not weird about it, Mm -hmm. and it forces other people to not be weird about it. Yeah. Other people are like, woo, ha-cha-cha. Yeah, and she's like, I had bills to pay, and this seemed like a good way to do it for a while. Yeah, but not even that, because that kind of (laughs) sounds... clandestine the way you put it oh i had bills to pay so yeah i killed a man (laughs) (laughs) at least you didn't kill a man just to watch him die (laughs) yeah exactly i killed a man just to pay some bills pay some bills just to pay some bills gotta keep body and soul together they asked what her experience as a romance novelist may have informed about her experience running for governor and she said part of writing a romance novel is taking the same story that's told over over and over and over again and it absolutely has to be the same story but telling it in a new way in a way that feels fresh in a way that feels like it speaks to people directly she's like you know running for governor I feel like I'm telling the same story like I want to help your family I want to do what's right but I've got to find specific and resonant ways to demonstrate that or whatever <laughs> so I thought that was pretty great that is great that's a lovely response she was also a dragon con which is the big com con in Atlanta Georgia it's exciting to see her there. I'm really what like is she doing there, just campaigning. Yeah, she's campaigning with all the nerds. Did she dress up? Did she, she did cosplay? Not. She did not cosplay. I love vintage references and the people who do like a really specific vintage. Like I like the people who come dressed as like the 1970s version of something. I think that's nice because I think it's interesting. Yeah. More interesting. If you were to go to a con, mm, I love dressing up, but I don't know that cosplay would be central to my con experience. I would want to moderate a panel. <gasps> that would be my dream. Oh, God. I want to be just famous enough to either be on a panel or moderate a panel. <laughs> and I would do I it. Be, I would moderate. That's amazing. What kind of panel would you moderate? I would want to do a comic book TV show adaptation. Mm, like The Flash? No. Something a bit more niche. Or like a book. Like I would have been very interested in moderating a The Haunting of Hill House mm. panel or The Preacher panels. Mm, mm. That's kind of what I'm looking for. I think you'd be great at that. Yeah. You ask very pointed questions. I do. You do. You know, if I was on a preacher panel, I would look Seth Rogen dead in his eyes and I'd be like, first season of Preacher takes place
place in West Texas, why didn't you bother including any West Texas artists mm. on the soundtrack? West Texas is known for basically one thing. Yeah. And it's country music. The soundtrack littered with country music. None from West Texas. None from West Texas. That seems like a gross oversight. I was I was upset. Yeah, I can see why. He's lucky that show is so good in every other way. That makes sense. Yeah, I don't even get mad about Tulip's accent because I think mm-hmm. she sounds like a cartoon character. Like, this mm-hmm. is Texas, y'all. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, we got way far off. <laughs> but not that far off because, right? We're back Texas, to Texas. Where this book by Selena Montgomery, a.k.a. Stacey Abrams, takes place. Yeah. We should do the synopsis together, I think, since we chose this specifically for the election. Yeah. Y'all gonna vote on November 6th. I know you are. Our heroine's name is Mara. Mara. She is a grifter. Yeah. And a bunch of other things. She's really like... Con person. She's like Sawyer from Lost. Yeah. She's got a heart of gold, but she's made some bad decisions and she's hurt some people that she loves along the way. She grew up in a cult. Sure did. Her dad was the leader of the cult, which is kind of fucked up and weird. And I want to talk about that. In Texas Hill Country, for those of you not familiar with this phrase, that's that's described... That you, the, the region around Austin and San Antonio, Texas is known as Texas Hill Country. Takes place specifically in a place called Kiev. Kiev. Spelled just like the city. Ukrainian city. The Ukrainian city, yeah. Kiev. You know how that happens, right? That people like it? Why people name their cities after... Why? It's because there were a lot of Ukrainian immigrants who settled that See, city. that's funny because in Missouri, when there's Versailles and Cairo, people from Egypt and people from France did not settle those cities. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the case with Kiev. Okay. I was wondering as I was reading about it and... It's a case with Odessa, Texas. Mm, that's cute. I love the name Odessa. Anyway, takes place in Texas. She's a grifter. She's made some bad decisions. She came from a pretty traumatic childhood. Her dad was a Christian cult leader. Mm-hmm. She brings up the fact in the book that it's kind of difficult to call him a cult leader because he did not make himself the central like deity right. or like even a mediator to the deity. Although people get branded and get specific numerological tattoos and he's a charismatic leader and a lot of dead bodies show up. So I'm confident calling this human being a cult leader. Look, man, I'll call anybody a cult leader. Cult leader. (laughs) Not to their face. No. Because I'm a coward. You're a lady. (laughs) You're a real Texas lady. (laughs) Anyway, she's on the lam. She has nowhere else to run to ground. So she goes back home and she's running. She's being shot at by our two big henchmen baddies, Guffin and Rabby. I just want to take a moment to go back to something. What's the name of that city in Missouri? Which one? Versailles or Cairo? Versailles. Mm -hmm. That's how it's pronounced. That's how it's pronounced, even though it's spelled Versailles. Uh Uh-huh. It's Mm -hmm. pronounced Versailles. Sure is. And Cairo is spelled Cairo. Yeah. I've been reading American Gods by Neil Gaiman. So good. Yeah. And they make a thing about how Cairo in mm-hmm. Illinois is yep. pronounced Cairo. Or does he go to the one in Missouri? He goes to the one in Illinois. Okay. Good talk. Yeah, Americans are weird. I wish the Neil Gaiman had made him go like a little bit further south a little bit earlier in the book. A little bit I further afield? I don't know. I could have read more about Missouri. Castle or House on the Rock. I mean, I just could have stayed there forever. Knowing that there's a Cairo in Missouri, mm-hmm. I think he could have gone down to Missouri. Sure. But maybe he was like researching it and he was like, well, I'm just in Chicago right now. Maybe I'd just go to Cairo in Illinois. Yeah, but, like faster. if you're going to Cairo in Illinois, you might as well go to Cairo in Missouri. It's, it's a lot actually... farther away. Oh, is it? Yeah. Like Cairo, Illinois, in terms of Chicago, like Cairo, Missouri is like mm, another seven hours Ooh. by car. We could have gotten into some more adventures on the way. Maybe. Could have gotten murdered. This has been, you should have workshopped this with me, Neil Gaiman. Morgan <laughs> Lodge. Uh, famous Wisconsinite. I mean, he wasn't born there, but he lives there now. Anyway. He lives there now? Yeah, dude. His writer's workshop is in northern Wisconsin. That's insane. Yeah, we could go to his house. Oh my God. You know he lives out in the middle of nowhere because Wikipedia just says he lives near a nothing town. <laughs> What's interesting about Menominee, Wisconsin, is that Menominee is a tribe. He's lived there since 1992. Yeah, how did you not know this? I think this might be a Wisconsin thing. Yeah, of course it's a Wisconsin thing. He also resides in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He would. And he's currently living in upstate New York because he has a professorship. Neat. Bard College. Ooh, that is neat, actually. I said it in all that. But nice. Natch. Natch. Anyway, we're talking about Texas Hill Country. 
and murder most God, I hope when I have children, they want to go to a small liberal arts college. Me too. I'm sorry I keep getting distracted. That's fine. I get it. Anywho. Anywho. So she is in the process of tracking down a hidden treasure. In fact, the book opens on a scene in the 30s wherein her grandmother is providing mysterious tattoos to her grandfather's posse. They've just stolen a bunch of gold from a train. Yep. And uh, anyways, she's trying to find it. She's trying to find it. Leads her back home to her old hometown. Kiev. 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 Chicken Kiev. 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 And she meets her old lover. Her childhood sweetheart. Ethan. Because he yanks her into a warehouse. And saves her after she's been shot. Unexpectedly. Her number was up. But he got her just in time. Got her just in time. And she's surrounded by dead bodies. And he nurses her to health. And it turns out they're actually working on the same project. He's just working at it from the academic angle. It's true. He is a forensic anthropologist. Mm -hmm. So he's just looking at these dead bodies, trying to figure out what's going on. Little does he realize his funding is coming from a sinister treasure hunter figure named Conroy, who in fact employs Guffin and Rabby, the hitmen hired to kill Mara. Ugh, boy. And then, just and then, put a little bit more salt in the sugar canister. <laughs> his long-term girlfriend, Leslie, Leslie arrives from University of Texas at Austin. Hook 'em horns. Hook 'em. Neither of us went there, but we just want to show support for people who did. Also, Bebo is that the name of the Bebo? Yes, I knew it. Bebo the bull. I know stuff about Texas. Don't keep animals. Don't keep animals like Bebo the bull. Did you like? Have you? Ever heard the origin story of Bebo the Bull? Like they ate him? That's an important lesson people need to learn. There are a lot of meat eaters out here who have never had a personal relationship with an animal they've eaten. Yeah, and like it's and part that's of like something the they thing. need to correct. You need to realize where your food comes from. It comes from a life. It's like not a sorority or a fraternity, but it's like a special club that like cares for Bebo and then like brings him out onto the field. And there's like this origin story that like they ate him as like part of their initiation process in the beginning. I don't know. This is what I know about Texas. But don't you think that's like good to have like a personal conscientious relationship with the meat? I don't think consuming Bebo is like a way of like being a better Bebo caretaker. That feels like a contradiction in terms. Like I get what you're saying. Like, yes, I think we should all have a better and closer relationship with the foods that we consume. Both in terms of meats, like you should know what a dead chicken is like. But also we should just keep chickens and like cows and stuff on like smaller farms where they can like chill more. Yeah, for sure. No CAFOs. This is really off track. I know. God, we cannot for the life of us. I know, dude. We're almost done with the summary. Uh, long story short, they realize that they're both in the same business. and They team up. Team up. Non-romantically. Yeah, they're having such a hard time with their sexual tension. And then, of course, they slip up. And they help each other out. And then Conroy, our nefarious uh, bad guy, comes in and makes stuff awkward. And they have to get out of it because that's how romance novels work. And then they do. And then they live happily ever after. So one of my main concerns about this book Uh. was about legacy. Because Mm -hmm. one of the things that we learn about Ethan our hero right away is that not only is he a forensic anthropologist that he's been working on his PhD and his goal of being a professor and being a successful one at that you know winning a Nobel Prize or something he's been working on this for as long as we've known him as long as Mara's known him and they met when they were like 17 but he's from nothing and when I mean nothing he was a literal orphan like in a house orphanage type situation not even foster care like we're talking straight up little orphan Annie style here and then Mara grew up on what is essentially a cult plot tens of people dozens of human beings none looking out for her welfare well her grandmother kind of not enough to really protect her from like the ire or the abuse that her father meted Mm. out so then there's this question of what legacy is working to do in this book because she's looking for her grandfather's treasure and the treasure itself it's also kind of a legacy of like a colonial past and like Ethan has nothing in terms of the legacy that he's inherited 
good. He's entirely a blank slate and whatever he's going to push forward. And I thought like... But he chooses to like glom on to this idea from his childhood girlfriend. Right. And seek out this particular manuscript and this particular project. But the manuscript is special because it reveals a treasure of West Africa, of yeah. Togo. Yeah. So then like the idea of building legacy and like what legacy means and how it's working, I think Ethan's project feels, I don't want to say like pure or like better or whatever because yeah. I think that's like giving it a value that like isn't necessarily fair. It's less tortured than Mara's. Uh-huh. And like Mara's legacy is embroiled in abuse and trauma. Uh-huh. And like the way in which that was worked out in this book was never fully acknowledged for yeah. me in a way yeah. where it's like Mara is 100% a child of abuse and trauma. We yeah. need to deal with that because it's informing her actions now and her inability to be loved. Yeah. And like that's important to how the story is working. Yeah. So we find out that she and Ethan, our hero, had like saved up some money. Over $2,000 as 18 year olds. They were going to leave town together. Mm -hmm. He was going to go to University of Texas at Austin, hook him horns. He had a full scholarship. She tells him like, I realized I was never going to get into that school. I couldn't have, you know, Texas, you have to be in the top 10% of your class to be accepted into UT. That was like an initiative they took to diversify their incoming students. They were like, whatever high school you're from, if you're in the top 10%, you get admitted. But certain students from certain socioeconomic backgrounds, their families have realized that by transferring their seniors, their second semester into... Yeah. Oh, it's exactly where you think it's going. Oh, God. And now UT is like, fuck, what do we do? God, fucking, fucking shit up when people are like, we should correct a historical wrong. And other people are like, not on my watch, bitches. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> the historical wrong allows me to think in loopholes and take advantage of them. Christ. Cool. That makes me feel even great. Whatever. But Ethan was probably a beneficiary of this top 10% rule. Yep because I mean it checks out timeline wise and Mara's like I was never going to get into that school mm-hmm. I was always going to hold you back I was going to be your weird girlfriend I was reminded yet again of that season of Boy Meets World where Topanga and Corey move into the family housing university yeah and she paints the house with the yellow uh, lines because that's the only paint that they she can afford Ugh. that's such a weird season it's so upsetting <laughs> so real frankly it's, so it's like the real. realest season of that whole show totally off topic but I was watching Girl Meets World with oh, yeah. two 13 year olds over the summer. Yeah. That show is really really sweet and Topanga and Corey have really grown into a marriage that is like really sustainable and giving. Which is insane considering what their first year of marriage was like. Oh my as god. Now know. Fucking really. Anyways. Anyways. But I think this idea of legacy. Mara and he were both kind of devoid of like the traditional idea of a family. Yeah. And so the idea of a legacy I think becomes something else. For sure. And the way in which like the reach back especially for Mara is not really ever a reach forward but Ethan's reach back is almost exclusively Mm -hmm. a reach forward and those notes that they discover as they close in on all of the keys and all of the pieces of the treasure are the notes from her grandfather from Mm -hmm. the past saying I hope you are of my family of my legacy my greatest treasure I hope you're not my son (laughs) because he's an asshole yeah it just seems like I mean it's one of those romance novel things where it's just like it's very clean it's Mm -hmm. very everything's covered the pointy ends you know yeah it feels like blunted swords even though like we are dealing deeply with swords we're dealing with two really really hurt people Mm -hmm. you know they've recently said that they believe that orphanages might be a more beneficial setting to raise a child in than the foster care system fascinating that makes sense so you don't have adults constantly disappointing children yeah and you have a family it's just Mm -hmm. a different structuring and I was listening to this thing on I can't remember where it was somewhere in Latin America on NPR where they were interviewing these kids who were raised in this system and Mm -hmm. they are getting consistently the same grades like you stay in the same school system Mm -hmm. you have brothers and sisters who Mm -hmm. you grow up with. You have basically three to four shift workers who stay with you throughout your life and you live in a house, Mm -hmm. basically. The consistency is what's really impactful. That makes sense. And like people, you know, they make the employment as, you know, a caregiver really appealing so that people stay in the position for a long time. Seems good. It was really interesting. And it totally, it just makes sense to hearing it. Like, I don't know anything about practice. Yeah. But it makes sense hearing it. 
for sure. That wasn't the experience I got the feeling that Ethan got. I think once again, the book did not super explore. I knew a lot of good footholds on Ethan, but Mara's trauma was very specific and very fleshed out. Yeah, Ethan felt like maybe too good. So like going back to this idea of lost, part of the reason why like Kate and Sawyer both as traumatic individuals who also continue to wreak conflict in the people that they love, like Mara felt a lot like that. And Ethan just felt too good. You know, he felt like he's going to forgive her. At one point she says, you haven't asked me any questions because she leaves him and steals this $2,000 from him and just is gone. And he not only has to deal with that, but then he goes looking for her thinking that she's in trouble and like goes to her father looking for her on the compound and she's not there. She's just entirely disappeared with the money and his broken heart and all his dreams. But then he finds out that she was actually severely beaten by her father because one of his congregants had seen her canoodling. Yep. Yep. Which makes all of this complicated. Yeah. So you think Ethan was too good. Yeah. Like, so when she shows back up 12 years later after this break and like he's gone looking for her and all this other stuff and he's like built his life, she says, you haven't asked me any questions. And she's hurt that he hasn't. He's like, I don't know how to let myself care about you. I don't know how to do that. And it's so clear that he already does. He's like hauled her in. He's healed her wounds. He's dressed her in his clothes. He's fed her. He's taking care of her. And he's like doing everything he can not to fall back in love with her. And like in all of those ways, Ethan felt like a little unbelievable. A little unbelievable? Yeah. It's like you rubber, you're so good. Like rubber stamped in the sense of like you're a hero's whose depth is his goodness. And like goodness is interesting. Like I'm not a type of reader who doesn't think that goodness is interesting. I think there can be depth and nuance there. The main factor in Ethan was his unrelenting goodness and its unrelentingness, the way in which it remains static, wasn't as interesting as I think it could have been. Oh yeah, I understand that. Part of the reason like Mara is in question of his goodness or like his willingness to love her, which is tied up in his goodness. But that's because we as the reader are always in flip-flopping back and forth between their perspectives from paragraph to paragraph sometimes Yeah, that allows us to understand him as statically good yeah yeah man the par- the perspective shifts in this were fast and loose I actually was really impressed by them I do agree that they happened frequently and they went all over it was like paragraph to paragraph from hero to heroine in some cases one time it switches perspective into the hotel lobby boy we get the villains perspective a lot and it is fast and I would say it's fast and furious but I was really impressed Impressed by the deftness of it because I've read other books where they've done perspective shifts like that and it has been really jarring Mm -hmm. even Awaken My Love which I thought was really great there were times when the perspective shifted and I was like wait who where am I whereas at this book I always felt very grounded and very understood and just went with it and I think that indicated a craftsmanship yeah this book is well paced are you saying that the perspective shifting is relative to the pacing I think the perspective shifting operates with the pace in the sense that like something exciting would happen or like the way in which attention could be ramped up or broken was often with a perspective shift. And this book felt very cinematic to me. There were a lots of like fade to blacks or like cut scenes. Yes. Yeah. And the perspective shifts felt like cut scenes to me where it's like, and then across the city of Kiev, Conroy sat with his henchmen. And I was like, all right. I know where I am. You're right. Because like the perspective shift wasn't disorienting. Yeah. And it never had to like, it never had to signpost itself in the way of like across town. Meanwhile, anything like that. I don't know if the pacing for me was great. It felt pretty deliberate and slow. You know, people talk a lot about how great noir detective books are. And Mm -hmm. I find them to have a very similar pace to this novel, which is not that interesting to me, which is very deliberate. And then this and then that and then this and then that and I think it also kind of lost something that because like I went into this being like I'm reading a romance novel I'm like I'm getting a happy ending that means they are going to find the treasure that means they are going to end up together I don't know if that's me feeling like a little bored right now with the 
genre or if it was the book itself. But I was just like, how do I get there? You know? Yeah, I think Stacey Abrams might be a better legislator than a romance novelist. I don't want to say it's like a bad book. Or anything like it's that. It's not. I think it's like, it's profoundly medium. There's nothing really remarkable happening here. There are tracks of it that are boring. This book is too long for itself. It gets lost in a couple of alleys that like it doesn't need to. I think Leslie functions as a weird red herring of a love triangle, like to add tension that like A doesn't need to be there and then B doesn't feel very tense. You know, all that said, like this isn't a bad romance novel in the sense that like all its parts are working. And it's written in a way that is deliberate and deft. But it's also like, meh. One of the things I thought about this book, and I rarely think about this, I was like, I'm not really enjoying this. But I actually thought this is not for me, the reader, because I don't enjoy this type of mystery unfolding, mm-hmm. crime solving, that kind of thing. Not I crime thought you would have. Like, I... But mystery unfolding. I don't really, I don't really dig that, mm-hmm. you know. But my mom really loves books like that. And I was like, well, she would love something like this where you're kind of solving being a mystery mm-hmm. along the way. And I then I was thinking like maybe if the book, you know, kind of pared down the romance stuff, mm-hmm. it would be a very tight perhaps more interesting adventure novel. Mm-hmm. I thought when I was reading love scenes that you would have really loved the love scenes. I did love Ethan's inner monologue. I knew you would. There's this moment. They're all like basically truth and justice monologues. Oh my God, I love it so much. It's so good. But actually sexual. Actually sexual. There's this moment where he's like, it's the first time where they almost have sex and they're downstairs with all the dead bodies. And this is my sexiest bit. And they're making out and she's like, I'll be the one that he blames if he cheats on Leslie. And I was like, this is actually smart and it sucks for you that you know this about him and like that added a moment of nuance to his goodness that she realized that and then he's the one that pulls back and says do you want me to stop and I was like oh I'm surprised and then he's like the one who stops it he's the one that stops it and guilt coursed through him with its greasy fingers and I was like oof that is what guilt feels like and Isabeau got all sorts of damn I did. I no. love weird food the, metaphors. <clears throat> greasy isn't a food metaphor. Yeah. I, I think of grease and I think of food. The reason I thought you would like them is that they are so bound up in larger ideals of human interaction. Stuff like this. They fell onto the bed, a twine of limbs, a tangle of need. Refusing to be taken, Mara ranged over him, body pulsing with aftershocks. Or this, she tells Ethan while they're having sex, you are all I've ever wanted. Ethan froze, stunned and humbled. I was like, if anyone is going to enjoy someone saying like they are stunned and humbled in a sex scene, it is Isabeau. The reason why he stops their initial sex scene is because she says, I love this. And love is too much of a word between them. And then he stops it because it pulls him up short because he can't trust it. Stunned and humbled. That shit is my catnip the thing about these sex scenes that made them b plus for me rather than a plus is the thing that you read a tangle of limbs twined together it's just like it's one too many just like use one i only need the one and then get me to the place about you're tangled and beautiful stunned and humbled that is what i like to hear i want all my men to be stunned and humbled by the experience (laughs) of having sex there's a sex scene in the newest season of big mouth where Mm -hmm. coach steve is ejaculating and he says, thank you, I'm sorry, over and over again. <laughs> Stunned and humbled. Stunned and humbled. I just frankly think, you know, that like men have had enough of a go where they should be fucking stunned and humbled for a while. Stunned just like humbled. that should be their main position right now. Stunned and humbled. You said during sex. <laughs> Stop trying to broaden this and make it political. You personally said that is how you want all men to be that during is. sex with you specifically. I mean, also in general. But trying to change this obviously clear psychoanalytic slice you just provided everyone with. Stunned and humbled. I think that's just the position that men should occupy for no, a while. No, you... Stunned and humbled. Quit trying to make it a larger political 
political statement. It was a personal understanding of how you want to be understood, and you want. I just want them to be sexual sense. Stunned and hummed. Stunned and hummed. Everybody just likes the good. and hum. Hummer. Hum 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 hummer. Stop it! You're so embarrassed. <laughs> That I got your number. You're trying to. I'm not trying a, to workshop it out here. A, I'm not embarrassed because I am myself, mostly unapologetically. So anybody who knows me could probably be like, "That's a lady who likes to think of herself as stunning and humbling in bed." There it is. There it is, y'all. There it is. She finally came out and said it. Will you finally stop being like, in general, <laughs> stunned and hummed, hummers, humdums, <laughs> humding dingers. I also feel that Just way about stated. it, though. It's both. Simultaneously. My sexiest part was when they made out and they got a little rough. But I think this book either needed more sex scenes, less mystery, Mm -hmm. or just more mystery and get rid of the sex until the last scene. Sure. What was your weirdest part? My weirdest part... I don't think I got enough background on the relationship. I guess this isn't really my weirdest part. I don't think there was like a lot of weird stuff in this book like we normally get. I think this was like a really pretty clean text as far as like weird author asides go, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which normally we get our weirdest stuff because romance novel authors tend to have this opportunity to be way more self-indulgent than other writers and other genres. Or yeah, like this book is consciously self-indulgent. Yeah, this you know? book is not unselfconsciously self-indulgent. It's not right. self-indulgent at all. But uh, I guess this is like a missed opportunity for me. When I started reading the book, I was so excited that this was going to be a Dust Bowl train robbery mm-hmm. piece. Mm-hmm. And it lost a lot of that. I think it would have been interesting to do like parallel narratives mm-hmm. and maybe the love story between Mm -hmm. the grandmother and Mm -hmm. the grandfather Mm -hmm. alongside the love story of Mm -hmm. Ethan. That would have definitely made it a longer book, but I think it would have made it a better, more interesting. I agree. That's immediately what I thought when we had that initial flashback. I was like, ooh, want more of this. My weirdest part is like the comfortability of the violence against women. We have a rape and a murder pretty early on. Mm -hmm. There's a threat of rape and murder of Mara herself. Can you explain the comfortability that makes you uncomfortable? That this book was so comfortable with so much violence against women. I think can like you ex- can you explain why you think the book is comfortable with violence against women? Because the people who are suffering violence are women in this book. Like Leslie's the one that's abducted. But what what says that it's comfortable for the book? The fact that women are the only people suffering the violence. But I mean that's women suffer most of the violence in the world. Sure. You said comfortability. I don't think the book is comfortable with violence against women. I think it's describing violence against women, but I don't see how the book is comfortable with violence against women. I guess like the ease in which described it, like both Mara's attitude, like her perspective about it, like nobody is, I guess, shocked or appalled enough with like the ease of the threats, like the way in which Guffin is constantly threatening Mara's body and her life, I felt like was either overdone in such a way where it's like this effect has now crossed a border and like that border feels like it's trading in a kind of trope that we are all probably too familiar with and like that's what I mean about the comfortability like like there's a way in which violence and the depiction of violence and the discussion of violence against women felt like not too true because I I take your point but like there was something about its depiction that felt like I don't know like maybe too easy of a reach or like whatever it was it felt like comfortable describing it in a way that I felt like wasn't doing enough to trouble that water. I'm just trying to think of like what a comfortable description of something is. Is it like a direct and simple or is it like what was missing? Like how could the author have troubled a description of violence against women? I feel like is it not like inherently troubled in itself? I mean, it's troubling, but to trouble it, like this, like, like the assumption that women are those that have to suffer the violence, like that was part of it, where it's like Mara's the one that's not only suffering the violence of like the present moment that we're in, but suffered then the violence of her cult leader father and like the way in which her grandmother also protected, but couldn't from that violence. And then like her friend that's raped and murdered at the beginning. And yeah. then like even the police chief lady whatever her name is Uh like the way in which women are 
being forced to inhabit the victim of violence. Like I just would have liked to have seen some dudes like, you know, get their balls kicked in or die. Like the way in which violence was meted out felt like unnecessarily one sided in a mm. way that like no one was commenting on it. Uh-huh. It was like that was the expectation. Well, I feel like Guffin is definitely described as a bad person who For goes sure. too far and is repellent to his co-henchmen henchmen and his boss, yeah. frankly, and is also repellent to the reader Mara and the reader. And Guffin is the one who is committing like rapes and murders and threatening rape and murder. Our main character, Mara, does use the idea of a woman as victim to get out of things. For example, whenever the hotel boy knocks on the door, she says, oh, yes, my ex-husband is crazy and stalking me. Um, and she does like a well-practiced sigh and everything. I guess I, I don't see the book is doing anything that isn't. The fact that Mara is able to trade on those factors, I think kind of maybe does some of the troubling for me because I tend to be pretty conscientious of, yeah, it didn't bother me. I mean, it did bother me, but it not in a way that I was like, boy, this book seems to really be enjoying violence against women. This book seems like, I think in general, society is very comfortable with violence against women and I think women are understood as superior victims yeah I think like this goes back to something that you said from our Jack the Ripper episode when you're like these women are less dead yeah because they have less value in society and, sex like, workers sex workers and yeah and women of color yeah and are it, officially known as the less dead and in maybe that way this book felt like it was talking about a way in which someone is like not officially known but those are the two categories of less dead and I think that's like really interesting and like the way in which like that can work itself through a narrative even implicitly and like but the, that's working itself through every narrative implicitly right like through the societal narrative that we've built as like creatures which is fucked up and crazy and the way in which this book was enacting itself there were moments where I was like can't we just have somebody be like god why are all these women getting fucking cut up that sounds like a problem you have with society rather than the text Sure. I wanted the book to comment on it. <laughs> That's not a fair criticism. Fine. To say like you want a book to comment on a societal ill. Yeah, that like if they were going to deal with violence against women, maybe it should be like, well, violence against women isn't that great. But that's not what happens. And like, that's not part of like a narrative structure. I feel like, like a, the more you know PSA announcement <laughs> is not part of. <laughs> hey guys, did you notice a lot of women were getting hurt in this book? Yeah, I did. <laughs> did notice. <laughs> All right. Well, that was my weirdest part. Are you serious? You're standing by that? A book didn't bring up a societal ill that you feel should be addressed in society? Yeah. And that's your weirdest part? Yeah. because That should have been your weirdest part for every book leading up to this point because so much violence against women has occurred in the text that we've covered for this show and this is the first time you're bringing it up? I don't think this is the first time I brought it up. This yes, it is. <laughs> this is the first time you've been As like my weirdest part, but like that's what I'm saying. Like this book isn't self-indulgent like there aren't weird historical asides there isn't like a truly meaty weird moment we've brought up the fact that like books are like oh my god this is awful this woman's getting raped over and over oh my god that's not consent that's sexual assault right. or, oh my god these women are getting beat but you've never been like this book needs to say something about this but I feel like the books say it when they're having a comment about like this isn't what consent looks like or when this but they isn't don't have a comment about this isn't what consent looks like that's us saying this isn't what consent looks like. I feel like a lot of the books we've read lately have a comment about consent. I mean, if we read something contemporary, contemporary Sure, a non-Johanna Lindsay. Yeah, a non-Johanna Lindsay, a non-Kathleen Woody Weiss, a non-Judith Ivory. But like, Judith we have Ivory. read all of those books and it's been us talking about it, but you've never... And I also don't think like every book we've read has been really clear and appropriate on like, you know, you didn't point out the fact that the last book we discussed, Dark Desires, you didn't point out that that book didn't make a comment on how terrible it was that all these women were getting killed. But it did make a lot of comments about it. What, what do you mean? Like the way in which the fear began to operate inside of the narrative where it's like the fact that he's targeting vulnerable women, like the fact that it's sex workers, the fact that it is the well, way in that, which... That just sounds like you want women to be more victims when we're victims. No. Because I, you want like some, like because fear can work as a way of commenting on a social ill. No. What I'm trying to Don't say... Don't you think perhaps our Mara, the heroine 
Madeline is a survivor and her I think instincts she is a survivor. are not to dwell. And perhaps that's why she's not taking the time to be deeply fearful or deeply remorseful about what happened to her co. And she mentions that she's super remorseful about it. And she also mentions how Guffin is really disgusting and like how disturbing it is that her father beat her for... I guess that other people weren't mentioning it. And since we're in everybody's perspective so much, I don't know. I feel like it should have troubled Ethan more. It should have... Just the way in which it was working felt felt weird to me. Okay. For this particular book, I thought you were going to bring up love triangles. I mean, Leslie feels like a really unloved and worked piece. I, I wonder like what makes a love triangle a love triangle. Is it just three people in a complicated relationship? Because it's not like she like really fights for Ethan. No, not at all. She pretty much just lets him go and then continues to help them and function as like a helpful. Like I do understand why she came in. Like she had the specific connections to get them into the cave of wonders and she had the understanding and was an extra person who could help them solve the mystery. So I understand why she was there. Right. But why and did I she have to have a that, romantic like, connection? She had to have a reason to come to Kiev couldn't she have just been colleagues with him but it was a project that he wasn't revealing to people what he was doing with it it was supposed to be secret so it kind of makes sense that like an intimate partner would be a way to get her over there but I do understand this idea of like a love triangle being like really crucial to as like a tool Mm -hmm. in romance novels and I wonder like how do we define love triangle because I would say this isn't a love triangle although at its face it's three people with a romantic entanglement technically yeah I mean like that's its broadest based definition but like it's not tense enough yeah like there's got to be conflict right like there isn't really yeah and like so that doesn't make it feel like a love triangle and that's why Leslie feels like a less like lived in character because mm. she yeah. feels like a plot device she is yeah nakedly so yeah yeah she is a plot device yeah so no this isn't like a true love triangle like all three characters must be at least somewhat fleshed out yeah and like can't be so obvious in their plot device piece yeah and there has to be conflict yeah like they have to actually want to all yeah be the together and then well at least key component yeah she was pretty transparently a plot device you know i'm not mad i think characters can be transparently a plot device for sure because you gotta have them yeah the only way the mystery gets solved is with a leslie type coming in well not specifically her type but someone who does the things she does Mm -hmm. i guess my weirdest part was texas yeah I've been thinking a lot about Texas. Does this book feel like Texas? Enough. Okay. The thing that I think gets like de-Texas a lot, I heard this on a, another podcast, the writer of Bonnie and Clyde, who's from Texas. He said when he went out to write the screenplay, he wanted to write something about Texas because up to that point, everyone was always talking about Texas, but they were really just showing you Arizona is what he said. I thought that was really interesting. And I think it's really interesting why Texas is such a source of... It feels like an outsized influence on the cultural imagination of the world. Sure, everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> it's a big state. And it's the Lone Star State. True. But I'm just wondering, like, what is it about Texas? Like, it can't just be the fact that it's a big state, like a geographically large swath of land that makes it so fascinating. Because Alaska's bigger. Sure. And Alaska- Way fewer people live there, though. Fewer people live there, but do you think that's it? It's just, like, it's bigness and population and geographic size that makes it interesting. I think there's also part of what <clears throat> keeps Texas in the imagination versus Alaska because I think that's a really interesting comparison. I think Texas is part of a narrative of like taming and conquer. That's Alaska too. But it's not because Alaska hasn't been tamed and conquered in the same way as Texas. Like there's no Houston Mm. in Alaska. There's no Dallas. There's Uh, no like you've got Anchorage, which is clinging to the shoreline as hard as it can. But like Alaska hasn't been brought to heel in the way that like Texas has been tamed and fenced in and like the prairies have been plowed. Like yeah. there's part of like a manifest destiny to that's Texas. What you think? I think that's part of it, but also like Texas is big and like Texas is big personalities and like it's big trucks and big cars and big people but why and big is smiles it that way? and big hair. And like why why is it that way? And like why I mean I just this is obviously not something that I feel prepared to give a response to this question even. I'm just pondering it where it comes from. I have my own intimate relationship with Texas because my family is from Texas. 
And people always ask me, other Americans always ask me, like, what are you? Meaning, you know, what's your, what, your fucking cultural heritage? Like, what part of Europe did your ancestors come from? Because I am a white woman. But people still ask me this question. And I always respond, like, not sure. Uh, <laughs> my family's been in this country for a long time. My parents are from Texas. So I was always raised to think of myself as a Texan American. <laughs> people think that's funny. But everyone has an opinion about Texas is the other thing. Yeah, you can't not have an opinion about Texas. Yeah, everyone has an opinion on Texas. And it's, once again, this setting that fascinates people. And I think it's clear that Selena Montgomery spent time in Texas because she was able to like drop some specific geographic references because it can be argued that Texas itself is like five different states Mm -hmm. and different cultures and different accents even and, and all that good stuff. But I am just querying why Texas? And I feel like if I could talk to Selena Montgomery and Stacey ask her, Abrams. you know, why did you choose Texas as the setting? Perhaps I could get at why Texas on a grander scale, why people who aren't from Texas return to Texas as this reference point. Like, I understand why people who are from Texas return to Texas as a reference point, but I, I want to know about, like, why people outside of the state are fascinated with it. Or, like, the author of Preacher. He's from Ireland. Why Texas? Why set Preacher in Texas? Why set Preacher in West Texas when you clearly know so little about West Texas? You know? Why Texas? I don't know, listeners. Why Texas? Why Texas? That's my big question. I don't know. One of my favorite movies with Gregory Peck takes place in Texas. Which one? Big Country. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's an amazing homoerotic scene between Gregory Peck and Charlton Heston where they fight with their shirts off. And like, there's a moment where you're afraid that like slash hoping that they make out, but they never do. You said afraid first. <laughs> because they're afraid. <laughs> afraid they're gonna make out yeah the look in charlton heston's eyes like oh shit this is gonna go down romance or nomance uh it's a nomance for me but i as always i think it might be a romance for somebody else in fact this is one of those books that i'm giving nomance to that i'm very assured other people will like so a nomance for you it's a nomance for me man yeah i really wanted to like this one i should stop going into books with expectations maybe that would help <laughs> that would help yeah maybe that would help just have the expectation that there's gonna be a happily ever after i do have that expectation otherwise it's not a romance we're gonna have that discussion don't you wear your pretty little head none we're gonna fight anyway uh loosen your stays listeners but never your principal and on november 6th georgia you better fucking vote stacy abrams in not just georgia all people in all, all people. states who have a vote should use their vote to make their voices heard right it's life or death out there folks if my preferred candidate lost and i knew every single person who could vote did vote in my election i'd feel better about the loss me too but not necessarily the case Vote, vote, vote. When you vote, then go back and pick somebody else up and get them to the polls. Yeah, take a friend with you to the polls, man. Yeah, let's. it's the buddy system. Get Grab up your buddy. for work. Instead of going to the gym, go vote. And then go to the gym. Or not. Just or skip not. the gym that day. You earned it. You voted. <laughs> get your sticker. And show us that you got your sticker. You know, They give you a sticker and people are like, oh, you're bragging about voting? Yes, you are. You did something you should be proud of. You participated in democracy, which a lot of people don't do in spite of the fact that they can. Right. And it's deeply important. Deeply important. On all levels of government also. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, vote. Vote. With that. Mwah. Whoa, indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week. <laughs>